0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, over the, the past few years, I've concluded that there's really just two types of Christians out there in the world. And uh, you, can det- you can determine what type of Christian a person is based off of what they do when they get on an airplane. All right. So there are those who, when they're flying, all they want to do is just keep to themselves. They don't want to interact with anyone else. Um, There's this journey. You're in too small of a space. You don't want to interact and, and talk to anyone else, especially those that you're not going to be talking with or that you'll never see again. And then there are those on the other side who see it as a mandate from God in the New Testament somewhere That they have to share the gospel with the person that is sitting with them because they have a captive, literally a captive audience. Especially if you're in the aisle seat, they can't get away from you in those moments. And I'm not, I'm not judging either of these two different uh, perspectives. Um, If you're wondering, I fall into that first category. I just want to get through the flight, get to my destination. That said, I do try, especially on on longer flights, try to interact with and and get to know those that I'm sitting next to. And uh, as I was preparing for this. Uh, the sermon, I, I just kept thinking of this one trip that I took uh, several years ago with a number of these interactions with other people. So I was on my way to East Africa. Um, I was uh, traveling there uh, with this missions organization to uh, basically just teach in a seminary there of African pastors. And, and I'm sitting in my seat uh, ready to fly from Minneapolis to Amsterdam. And I feel like, all right, I got eight hours, and I'm, I'm going to be sitting next to this person. I should at least get to know their name uh, whatnot. So I introduce myself, start a little bit of small talk, say, find out this person is actually from Amsterdam. Uh, and I, I say, hey, so what brought you to Minneapolis? And they say, I'm here for a conference. So, oh, great, a uh, conference. What, what kind of conference brings you to Minneapolis? And they say, a Wiccan conference. Oh. Buckle up! This is going to be a fun eight hours uh, that I'm stuck right next to this person, right? And so um, I, I'm trying to continue to to be friendly to this person. We begin to make a bunch of small talk, um, or continue the small talk. And and, I, and and frankly, I'll just I'll just be really candid. I'm I'm genuinely interested in what on earth a Wiccan conference is like, right? I didn't know they had those. I have no idea why it's in Minneapolis, and so I say. Oh, Okay, you're gonna have to unpack that. You're gonna have to tell me what exactly takes place at this kind of conference. And so she she starts telling me five minutes about all of these different horticultural studies and breakouts that she went to. Horticulture. What are we talking about here? She keeps going, and, and soon enough, I realized, okay, I didn't understand her. This wasn't a Wiccan conference. This was some sort of gardening conference. Uh, that's that's completely different. All right. Uh, so so then she um, she returns the favor and says, all right, wh- what are you what are you doing flying across? The Atlantic Ocean, and I say, "Well, I'm actually on my way to East Africa." Oh, cool! What are you doing in East Africa? I'm I'm teaching. uh, I'm teaching pastors. And and the response in that moment, three things: smile faded. Conversation was just kind of over, and we had this awkward silence the rest of the trip. Later on that same trip, I'm flying. a flight in tanzania from one location to another i'm talking to another friendly dutch woman of all things and so i'm talking to this person and, and I, hey what are you what are you doing in, in uh, tanzania and she begins talking about how she has all these friends here and, and she's explaining just this great experience that she had getting to know all of these different people she talks for like 20 minutes and i'm like this is great you, you keep telling me about your life and then she says so what about you what are you doing in, in tanzania and the exact same response when I tell her I'm here to, to teach pastors, smile fades, the walls go up, and the conversation's over. Had another flight on that same trip. I'm flying back from Tanzania to Amsterdam, and I get stuck on the plane. Uh, they let us walk around for about a half an hour while they refueled and all these kind of things. And, and I get to talking with this man. Uh, and ask him, you know, what are you, what are you doing here? He's clearly from the United States. And, and he begins to tell me all about how he has received all of these research grants from these universities in the United States uh, to look, up for, look for proof of human evolution in the East African Rift. Like, oh, okay, well, that's fun. And, 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 and to be honest, again, I'll, I'll be completely candid. I found everything he was saying really, really fascinating. Even though there was this massive gap between his worldview and my worldview, I was there for the exact opposite reason he was there. I'm I'm there to try to hopefully build up the church, and he's looking for things that that well aren't going to build up the church, to to put it kindly. And and after the the previous two conversations I'd had on on airplanes on that flight, I was just nervous for when he asked me right. This is just going to be awkward once he finally goes, gets to this point where he asks what I'm doing here. And so I'm, I'm stealing myself for this, uh, this rejection and, and the same response. And, and so he asked me eventually, so what brings you to Tanzania? And I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm training local pastors on how to faithfully interpret the Bible. And his response wasn't shutting down the conversation. It was confusion. It was confusion because according to everything that the world says, we were supposed to be mortal enemies. And I just spent 20 minutes listening to him talk about something that I was apparently supposed to find deeply offensive. And I was listening to him in a way that he actually went out of his way to tell me, not even my girlfriend listens to me like this. That's a little weird, but she can yeah. She was, she was actually there, and she said, yeah, I'm just here to go look at the elephants, right? <laughs> and, and we get to this point, and, and, and I, I say, you know what? I, I, I'm here to train pastors. I'm, I'm here to, to teach pastors. And he just responds with this confusion, this confusion, because even though there's this massive chasm between his beliefs and my own, that didn't mean a heated argument. It didn't even mean unpleasantness in our, our conversation, and it's that conversation that just keeps coming back to mind as I think of this morning's text. We live in a very contentious culture, don't we? Very contentious culture. To put it, put it mildly, everywhere you look, whether it's, it's cable news, the internet, bumper stickers, yard signs, all of these different things, they just, are, they breed contention in our culture. And unfortunately, all too often, Christians are no different than those that are around them. It seems like a lot of times, Christians are more interested in winning arguments than we are about winning people to the gospel. And this text talks about the heart that we should have in a very contentious age. The, the, the priorities that we should have in the midst of a lot of disagreements, a, a lot of, of heated arguments and discussions. And hopefully it has a, a lot to say to each and every one of us. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Second Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 22 through 26. And, and it's in that passage we're given three commands from the Apostle Paul. Three commands on how to be faithful in the midst of a contentious culture. And not only that, but he also gives us after that a perspective or this overarching perspective that will help us to live out these commands in our lives. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 22. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, Father, I, I, uh, I want to start this morning just again by saying thank you. Thank you for your word. It's, it's such a beautiful, powerful passage. God, I pray that it would sink deeply into our hearts. And God, that through the Holy Spirit, you would transform our hearts, that you would transform our lives. God, we ask that you would help us to be obedient to this text. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, so I mentioned that this text has, has three commands on how to live faithfully in today's contentious age. The first one, pretty obvious, found at the beginning of verse 22. Paul says this, uh, let go of youthful passions. Let go of youthful passions. Uh, again, verse 22, so flee youthful passions along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Throughout 2 Timothy, Paul has been emphasizing the importance of being faithful to Jesus in any and every circumstance that we find ourselves in. In Paul's day, there are a number of people who are abandoning the gospel. They're walking away from the faith. And Paul doesn't want that to be the case for you or for me. And so he starts this sentence with the word, so. And he's giving us this glimpse of how we are to remain faithful. The first thing he says is to rid our lives of youthful passions. And you might say, okay, that's, that's great, but, but what exactly does that look like? What exactly does he have in mind when he talks about youthful passions? This is a relatively generic, all-encompassing term, right? On the media context of 2 Timothy, I think he's talking about these, these conversations, these, these discussions that really just boil into these heated arguments, and he's talking about temper. He wants Timothy to make sure that he is watching his temper, that he doesn't want to uh, be someone who is known as as angry, but instead as kind and as gentle. He wants to make sure that Timothy, he he might be burning white hot with his relative youth, but that he doesn't burn those that he interacts with. Of course, by saying youthful passions... Paul is not at all saying that these things only exist because Timothy is young. I think Timothy at this age or about this time is around the age of 40. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've heard that that 60 is the new 40. So actually what Paul is saying, he's saying this is true for for every single one of us. It doesn't matter how young you are or, or how young you aren't. There are likely things in your life that still exist that might have, might have been something that, that was there when you were young, but there's still a kernel of it for you today. Example from my own life. I, I know I'm only in my 30s, but, but all I have to think of is my temper in high school, especially when it came to tennis. And the number of times I threw my racket and I broke it once, and that's all that I can think of is, is there are times that while my, my temper is, has cooled over the decades, hopefully it's because I've just gotten older and I just don't have the energy for that, but, but also because hopefully Jesus is at work in me, but there's that remnant that, that still crops up of this youthful passion from time to time. You can just ask my wife, Crystal, anytime I'm doing electrical work in our house, that's when my temper shows up. And, and this is what Paul is talking about when he, when he says, flee youthful passions. And, and honestly, that's why I say let go of youthful passions here. Because some of us, we've been holding on to these passions for far too long. And Paul, when he's telling us to flee them, he's, he's just saying, hey, let go of them. Get rid of them. Have nothing to do with them. Banish them from your life. Alistair Begg is a pastor in the Cleveland area. He, he shares three additional categories of youthful passions that he has in mind or what he thinks of. Uh, in, in true pastor fashion, there's an alliteration here. They all begin with the same letter. First is power. The pursuit of power, the pursuit of control, authority that, that youth all too often believe in, that they, that they think that they deserve. Anyone who has had to deal with a middle schooler or or a high schooler or anyone who is or once was a middle schooler or high schooler who doesn't really want to listen to their parents knows that this is true. The seeking of power, the seeking of being able to decide things for myself is true within every single one of us. All of us want it our way, not someone else's. And God's word says, let go of that. Flee that type of heart. Another thing that, that Alistair Begg says, he, he says that we are consumed with this pursuit of pleasure, things that will make us feel good. And while sometimes that refers to sex, it's, it's certainly more than that. Food, therapeutic shopping, too much TV, other media, those types of things, the pursuit of this inordinate amount of comfort in our lives, it all falls into this category. And Paul says, if we are going to be faithful to Jesus in this day and age, no matter how old you are, then you have to get rid of those things in your life. Third thing, possessions. The accumulation of of more and more and more. It's not unique to those in their youth, but it certainly takes root there. I've seen that in my own kids. I look at my own life and look back, and I see that in my own life. When life becomes more about what we have rather than who we are, when it becomes more about what other people think of us rather than how we can be faithful, Paul's words here are very clear. He tells us to let go of those things, to flee those types of passions. That's not all Paul says, of course. Paul, Paul doesn't just stop there. He says later in this verse, the second command, the natural overflow of a heart that runs away from these things is a heart that embraces a life like Jesus. Embraces this life like Jesus. Verse 22 again. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Again, this, this command goes hand in hand with the previous one, doesn't it? It's not enough if your house is on fire for you to just run out of one room into another room. You have to leave the entire house. You have to have an, an intentional direction that you are running toward. As we hear these different character traits that we are supposed to pursue... Righteousness, faith, love, peace. Are there better words to describe what Jesus is like? So Paul's charge here to Timothy is extremely basic. He he just says, I, I want you to, to embrace a life that is like Jesus. And I want us to unpack each of these terms for just a few moments. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And what exactly do they all mean? But I don't want to do that at the expense of missing the big point that Paul is trying to make. He's really just wanting us to live a life like Jesus as we get rid of those youthful passions that we would run toward. A life that is like Jesus. And these, this life like Jesus is one of righteousness. This is a, a common Christian term. It's Christianese, isn't it? It means just or or upright. It's this life that is ultimately found in Jesus alone. And yet oftentimes, when the Bible uses this term righteousness to refer to people, to refer to you or, or to refer to me, what it has in mind isn't so much our vertical relationship with God, but instead our horizontal relationship with other people. If you're familiar with the story of Job, Job actually describes his righteousness before God solely in terms of how he treats other people. Consider this, Job chapter 29. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. My, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him who did not, I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. If you want to embrace a life like Jesus, if you want to leave behind youthful passions, if you want to be faithful to Jesus in today's world, then live a life of righteousness. Pursue justice in your interactions, and in your relationships with those who are around you. And that means caring for the poor. That means taking care of the fatherless, taking care of those who are in need, Even and maybe even especially, according to Job, those that we do not know. Embrace this life of righteousness. Paul doesn't just stop there, though. He also mentions faith. He says we have to live this life of faith. What is faith? Is it just this nebulous thing that, oh, I got to believe, and it doesn't matter what I believe in? A couple months ago in in December, we went through Romans chapter 4, and we saw that Paul describes what faith is in Romans chapter 4. I love this verse. Romans 4, verse 21, he says that Abraham, this paragon of faith, was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So a life that is like Jesus is one that trusts God to do what he has said that he is going to do. Even when your life doesn't line up with the promises of the Bible, what God said he is going to do for us, it is this heart that says, you know what, God seems like the type of God who keeps his promises. God seems like the type of God who is worth trusting. And so I'm going to continue to ask him to come through for me as I trust in him. So embrace a life like Jesus. And that means to have faith, to trust that God keeps his promises. Another thing that Paul says is this character trait of love. Love, of course, is is more than a feeling. It's this intentional act. I was reading this book this past week. It's called J Curve, and it talks about how we die and rise with Christ in each and every day. And, and Paul Miller, the author, he points out that love at its core is an act of substitution. It's an act of sacrifice. And he tells this story of a snowstorm in the mid-90s. He and his family had lived in Philadelphia in the main area. They just moved outside, and they would bought this little farm that came with a couple different animals. And, and his wife was learning uh, how to how to take care of all of these different animals as as they were going along right the snowstorm is is on the horizon it's on the forecast and she is is nervous that all of the animals are going to perish in this snowstorm and so uh, Miller decides, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call a local sheep farmer. And so he calls someone up and says, hey, what do I need to do to prepare for this snowstorm that's coming? Uh, the, the sheep farmer says, just your, your animals will be fine as long as they have shelter. And so he goes back to his wife and says, all right, they're going to be fine as long as we have shelter. We have shelter, so, so we'll be okay. And, and that set his wife at ease for a little bit. And then the snow started to fall. And around 10 p.m., as the snow is coming down, and it's been coming down for hours, She's, she's starting to pace the halls, and she says, Paul, can you go check on Ed? Ed is the name of their sheep. I don't know why the sheep is named Ed, but, but it's true. So, e- can you go check on Ed? And his initial response in that moment is to say, no, I'm not going to go check on Ed. I'm going to stay in here. It's nice and warm. Ed is going to be fine. I love that name for a sheep, by the way. So, Ed. And yet, in that moment, before he opens his mouth, He has this realization. He had been praying for years that God would reveal to him ways that he can love his wife more effectively. And now he realizes in this moment how he can love his wife more effectively. Not just in this moment, but his entire life. It is simply this. This isn't complicated, he writes. I can substitute my warmth for her worry. And that's it. And so he goes out there, checks on the the sheep. The sheep is fine. He comes back in. He substitutes his warmth for his wife's worry. And that is at the core of what it means to love. It is to substitute. It is to sacrifice. That's what Jesus did for us. After all, he he substituted himself for us. He offered himself as a sacrifice for us as an act of love. And if you are going to love other people well, it is an intentional act of substitution. It is an intentional act of sacrifice to substitute, to sacrifice your comfort, your preferences, your finances, your time, your priorities for those who are around you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Paul mentions a, a fourth area of life and this life of, of peace. He, when he's talking about peace, he's, he's not just talking about not being anxious or, or not being worried or untroubled. He's, he's referring to how our interactions with other people go. Rather than throwing gas on the fire of this contentious age, that we should do all that we can to pursue peace in our relationships with others, especially with those whom we disagree with. And it's that context, or that focus on on interpersonal relationships that Paul picks up in the third command that he gives us, starting in verse 23. He says this, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So what is Paul's concern here? It's simply this, to let our interactions be ruled by kindness. Let your interactions be ruled by kindness. When other people think of you, think of their interactions with you, the biggest impression that they should have of talking with you is that you are kind, Jonathan Edwards, writing centuries ago, said that this is the true and distinguishing disposition of the heart of Christians. This is not something that is an additional add-on, an optional extra for us, but it is the most Christian way that you can be. It is to be kind, just like Jesus is. This is the heart of Paul's concern for Timothy as a pastor. He's writing to Timothy, and he says, I want you to do three things. I want you to be known for three things in verse 24. He, he says, I want you to, to be kind toward all. I want you to be able to teach, and I want you to be patient when you are enduring evil. Of those three, two of them apply to every single one of us, right? doesn't matter if you're a pastor or not, a church leader or not, that you would be patient in the midst of evil because you are kind. In fact, that seems to be what Paul has in mind at the end of verse 22. He says, he's giving these instructions to Timothy, this pastor, and he says, I want you to do these things along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. This should be the heart posture of the entire church, of people who flee youthful passions, of people who run after this life like Jesus, and these people who are known for their kindness with others. And so ask yourself, are you kind not nice, whatever that means. We, don't, we actually try not to use the word nice with our kids. We don't really care if our kids are nice. We care deeply if they're kind. Are you kind? Are you Christ-like in your kindness with other people? Mark Twain, I think it was Mark Twain, said something like, Kindness is the language of the deaf and the language that the blind can hear. Kindness is something that all of us can see and appreciate. Let me be very clear in this. You will make a bigger impact for the kingdom of God with one act of kindness than you will with 100 right arguments with someone else that do not have any kindness there. I think one of the reasons why kindness is so rare today, honestly, is because of our phones. It's because of social media. It's because of the internet. We have take, we have, we've stopped taking kindness into account when we interact with others just because we're throwing things out into the void. I think all of us would do well to ask the question, is my consumption of media, my phone, is it killing my kindness? Am I not someone who is known as being kind. This call to be kind is is coupled with this call to be patient while enduring evil. This is the natural overflow of kindness. When people criticize us, when when people slander us, when people make assumptions about us that are hurtful because they are untrue, kindness doesn't mean that we return the favor. It means that we are patient in enduring evil. It's the spirit of Gentleness. There's this book out there, A Gentle Answer. It's by Scott Sauls. And in that book, I think it's actually in the foreword by someone else, he says that this gentleness, this kindness is the key between the difference of using Jesus and following Jesus. When we are kind, we are actually following Jesus rather than using him as a tool for whatever we want to accomplish. Kindness must be king in our lives. Of course, all of this is really hard for us to put into practice, especially when it seems like the world is using a completely different rule book. How are we supposed to live out this charge that that Paul is giving to Timothy? The answer is this perspective that, that Paul mentions in verses 25 and 26. He says this, I want you to correct your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul says that the key to to fleeing these youthful passions, the key to embracing a life like Jesus, the key to kindness is to, to change your perspective, to stop seeing other people as enemies and instead to start seeing them the way God sees them. To stop seeing them as your opponents and start to see them as captives. Those who have been ensnared by the evil one. What if the goal of our conversations with other people wasn't to score points? It wasn't for us to win arguments, but instead to plant a seed of kindness that might someday blossom into repentance. Notice in this passage, God is the one who grants repentance. Repentance isn't guaranteed, but God is the one who Grants repentance. This actually is one of the reasons why it's so easy to not be offended by people when they say offensive things to us. When they believe things that are so radically different than us. Of course, why would they believe what I believe if God hasn't been at work in their hearts to bring them to this place where they can receive repentance? It's all about perspective in our lives. Paul reminds us in these verses to have the right perspective, to remember the true enemy, to remember the end goal. And if we adopt this perspective... If every single one of us in every single one of our interactions adopts this perspective that we are serving Christ, our lives will be changed and the lives of those who are around us will be changed. You see, at the heart of this passage is this overarching truth. We live in a very contentious age and Christ-like kindness is the key to faithfulness. If you are going to be faithful today, then the key is Christ-like kindness. I read this past week: the average person speaks 10,000 to 20,000 words a day. 10 to 20,000 words a day. You take that and you couple, with, couple it with what Proverbs chapter 10 says, Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, transgressions are not lacking. And this sobering conclusion that we reach is that every single word I speak, whether that's from my lips or whether that's from my fingers online, every single word that I speak is an opportunity for me to embrace a life like Jesus, or it is an opportunity for me to sin. Christ-like kindness is key each and every day to not use the weapons of this world, but instead... To use God's plan for his people. That kindness may perhaps lead to repentance. Many of you may be familiar with the story of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield tells uh, in her, I guess it's a memoir in her book, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert, she tells this gradual story of life transformation that takes place in her life, not because of this miraculous thing, but because of the kindness of Christians. Butterfield was an atheist. She was a professor uh, at Syracuse University, active lesbian uh, relationship. And through a turn of events, she actually builds this relationship with these with his pastor and his wife, is invited into their home frequently, consistently, and she is blown away, not by their winsome arguments, but by their winsome kindness. And she can't escape them. She actually talks about how she wants to to get away from them, but she keeps being drawn back to this winsome kindness. For years, they modeled kindness of Christ toward Butterfield and toward her friends who wanted nothing to do with them, and it is through that kindness... that God brought her to repentance, brought her to the gospel, all because of Christ-like kindness. The Holy Spirit could use you, if you are kind, to bring people to repentance. God may perhaps grant people repentance if we are kind. What if God's plan for each and every one of us is to transform the world through kindness. What if God grants repentance to those who are around us rather than using the world's weapons, but because we use kindness toward those who are around us? Christlike kindness is key if we want to be faithful in this contentious age. What if you were known for not, not your winsome arguments, but your winsome kindness. Let's pray. Father, I, I confess that all too often I I'm not kind. I don't model you well. I see other people as opponents. I ask for forgiveness for that. God, help us to be a people who embrace a life like Jesus, that flee these youthful passions and and seek after kindness with everyone that we interact with. Help us, God, to be a people who are known not by our arguments, but by our love. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.